Miss the show? No worries. On point and on the podcast, new polling suggests more than half of Canadians think it's time to divorce our country from the monarchy following that bombshell interview between the royals and Oprah Winfrey. Is this really a tradition we want to buck? We'll talk about that. You've lost your job, and now what? We'll talk with someone who lost his job a few years back and had to completely rebuild his life, and now he wants to help those out on their luck do the same. And a court challenge against these quarantine hotels goes before the courts this Friday. But it's not just to shut down the quarantine hotels. It's about compassion and why we're not allowing people to travel for things like funerals, weddings, or to maybe be with a loved one while they're ill. We'll talk about that. Let's get talking. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. I think that people have to realize that it's not that we're flip-flopping. It's just that we try to monitor the evidence. I think the only thing that um, I would say would have been done differently is the communication support so that we would have been able to explain all this exactly as we're doing today. And so based on that, um, I think the Public Health Agency of Canada has now um, recognized that this support was absolutely necessary and this is now put in place. Could have been done earlier, but, you know, it's the first pandemic of this size and it was the first time that we ran into so much um, complications. Oh, these experts need to pick a lane on vaccines or they're going to lose public confidence. But, you know, if if our experts, if they want people to buy into vaccines, then they've got to be clear and they've got to be consistent and they've got to offer a proof behind their uh, decision making. And today, as you've been learning, the decision makers at the vaccine table are changing who can get AstraZeneca. So they say they're not flip-flopping, but just offering clarification. But what they are doing is flip-flopping and causing confusion. Because not only will this sow more seeds of doubt for those already hesitant to get poked, but up until yesterday, they were adamant that those 65 and up should not be getting this shot. And now they say, well, the decision is changed. And it comes, of course, as a number of European countries pause on using this vaccine altogether. And so what's changed? Like, why is something that wasn't accepted 24 hours ago now fine? And when you look at this vaccine, it is said to be 62% effective for those aged 18 to 64. And so then you ask, why are we giving it then to those who are older and much more vulnerable? I mean, should they not be given automatically Pfizer and Moderna, which would give them the most protection possible? Well, who knows? The vaccine committee didn't give us any data or really explain the decision. Now, I mean, context matters. And AstraZeneca has been very effective in the UK. I mean, they've used it to vaccinate millions of people, including those over 65. And I think that's what our officials are kind of basing their decisions on, because there's no actual studies on on this. As for things like the blood clot concerns, again, the context matters. When you see the numbers out of the 17 million doses of AstraZeneca given, there have only been 37 cases involving blood clot issues. And I mean, if you want to take a look in your drawer of medicines, there's warnings all over different kinds of medicines, including your birth control um, and, and blood clots. So when you ask me, I'm not, I'm not personally hesitant about this or any of the other vaccines, 
And so I'll take what's offered. But the reality is a lot of you are. You're very hesitant. And so every time this government changes the goalposts or flip-flops on decisions, all they're doing is creating more mistrust. Not to mention Premier Ford today didn't hide his frustration, admitting every time deliveries are delayed or they change the goalposts, it's making it impossible for provinces to get these shots into arms. When we get a change of direction from the feds, which is nasty, and they're, they're changing and moving the goalpost, I, I can't begin to tell you how, the logistics behind it. Um, it just messes everything up, to be very frank with you. It's good news that they can, uh, you know, can go uh, older than 60, 65. But, man, we, we have everything set up, we get everyone lined up, and all of a sudden, without notice today, now we can move the goalpost again. So there you go. The bigger problem that continues you know, to play for me, and I think what should concern us most, is that politics is driving a lot of these decisions. And Dr. Quash, who is the one who decides on vaccine approval and dosing, she just admitted last week that when it comes to extending these first and second shots by four months, it's only being done because we don't have enough supply. If we had had enough vaccines to vaccinate all Canadians quickly and at least those most at risk with two doses of vaccines, we would not have needed to extend the interval. That's for sure. Hmm. So look, there's no data backing up that decision. She admits it. And that should not be okay. Because what it means is, you know, the Trudeau government's playing vaccine roulette so they can score political points and make it look like everyone is getting vaccinated when the real story is that we're only going to be partially protected. That's not what we were told. The talking point was everyone will be fully vaccinated by September. Not everyone will have one dose of a vaccine by September. And so that's why we're hearing growing calls from those in the medical community who are saying stop playing with these dosing dates. That's why Pfizer came out and said stop playing with dosing dates. There is a real concern that uh, if we do this, we're not going to get herd immunity. We are going to give those already hesitant further reason not to get poked. But more dangerously, I think, than anything is that if you change and play with the dosing and delivery dates, we could risk in this country creating a resistant strain of the virus that will adapt to the vaccine. Then what? I mean, this country would be an absolute pariah around the world. And people would not be very happy. Bottom line is, you know, if those in charge, all these experts, want um, people to line up for vaccines, then they've got to stop changing their tune. But the sad reality is, and it is the reality, I mean, we have little choice in this country but to uh, take whatever we can get at whatever age we can get it because we are so far behind in vaccination that we are going to be dwarfed by these variants and uh, yet another wave of COVID, which is apparently now on us. So we'll see uh, day to day as this thing changes and um, we'll talk about this third wave because I think it really depends who you ask. The science table now says we are in a third wave, but then the York medical officer tweeted out, he says, no, we're, we're not in a third wave. We should not be locking down again. He does not see these variants exploding. But who should be making the decisions on these lockdowns? Who should be making decisions as to what our next few months look for? And there was an interesting exchange during the Premier's press conference today. And he was asked a very straightforward question. If we're going to have kids getting back into things like sports this summer, camps, whatever. And he 
I'll play his, his question and I'll open the phone lines to you at 7 o'clock because he stated, you know, it's not his decision, which I would argue with because he is the elected official. It's his job as premier to listen to his health officials and then risk and weigh the pros and cons of what they say and what he feels is best for the public at large. So I'm going to open the lines at 7 o'clock and get your thoughts on if it's time that the premier takes some leadership on these health conditions. Because you know what? At the end of the day, these health experts, if they could, they would keep us locked down every day for the next two years. So there's a couple of outliers in, in the medical field, but I think the premier's got to step up and take some leadership on this issue. Otherwise, wh- why do we elect him? Uh, we don't We don't elect Dr. Davila. We didn't elect Dr. Lowe. We didn't elect any of these public health officials. And frankly, they haven't really shown their work so far. So until we see the data, I'd like the premier to start making some decisions. Here on Point, this is Global News Radio. In the fallout of that explosive, Meghan and Harry sit down with Oprah Winfrey. A new polling shows that uh, just over half of Canadians, so about 53%, say it's time we divorce from the monarchy. And the feeling is, I guess, that in the 21st century, this old tradition has no place in modern Canada. And a third of those asked say, no, no, we want to preserve this part of our heritage. I'm sure actually a part of this conversation also has been further fueled by the recent scandal involving the now former governor, Julie Payette. But what would Canada be like without the monarchy? And is it as easy as saying we're out? Not so much. David Onley is former lieutenant of Ontario, lieutenant governor of Ontario. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, All right. Of your mind, you would like this tradition to continue. Well, definitely. Uh, you would expect me to say that. But I mean, I, I would say it not just as former lieutenant governor, but also currently as a associate professor in the teaching stream at the U of T um, mm-hmm. on a course called the Crown, Parliament and uh, the People, um, because it's not easy to remove or change the structure of our government, wherein the Queen or the Crown, whoever that person may be, the Queen for most of our lifetimes, um, is is the head of state of not just Great Britain, but of Canada. So that's a constitutional reality. To change that would require the unanimous consent of the federal government and all 10 provinces. And it just beggars the imagination as to how we would ever be able to come up with that. And if we did, um, the next question is, so what would we replace it with? And are the politicians in charge in Ottawa, either this uh, present government or any future government, um, in, the, in the great list of problems that we face uh, today in Canada, and, and frankly throughout the world, not the least of which is COVID, but uh, climate change, uh, racism, definitely, uh, our attitude towards uh, seniors, uh, towards disabled people, to Indigenous people, all of these problems where does the ranking of a system that has worked fairly well for over 150 years, where does that rank as a priority requiring change? 
Yeah, there there is definitely a detachment between younger generations and older yeah. generations. I mean, if I ask, if you ask my mom this question, she'd say, "No, no, we stay with the monarchy." But you ask some mm. of the younger uh, generations, they don't they don't have the attachment that um, older Canadians do to this. And I'm of two minds. I mean, I really respect Queen Elizabeth. I don't have as much time mm-hmm. for her son Charles, so I'm not uh, you know I'm not as attached to the monarchy. But I do like the no. tradition of it. Yes, and I, and I think that's the feeling of a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, you know, we're caught up in the modern world of uh, media, uh, multimedia, uh, social media, and people watch the crown and think it's the real thing. Um, mm-hmm. and then we have royals being interviewed by Oprah. And with the greatest respect <laughs> to uh, both Oprah and um, all the participants, um, really, you were dealing with two Americans who did not know a great deal about the structure of monarchy. And, you know, it's what I, I found difficult in watching that is that um, we all have family problems. Um, I'm not making excuses, not for a moment, but I mean, we all have family problems, but it's not played out in the media before millions and millions of people listening to every single word that is, uh, is being said. And, and certainly, you know, Given the difficulties that this young couple have been experiencing for the last couple of years, um, I'm not going to badmouth them or say that. I mean, I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, Prince Harry on three separate occasions uh, when he was here for the uh, 2016 Invictus Games. And he is a very engaging individual and a very thoughtful uh, individual, I believe. Um, and, you know, clearly this is the love of his life and uh, you wish them nothing but uh, good circumstances. But clearly something was amiss in Great Britain, uh, clearly enough that they felt compelled to come briefly to Canada and, and now to to Hollywood. And the question then becomes, uh, on the basis of their complaints and primarily hers, but let's say the both of them, is that the justification for us to have a serious re-examination um, of our structure of government? And my suggestion is, uh, no, not right now. Doesn't mean we won't have it, but I'm not sure that I don't believe that this is actually the time uh, to have this conversation. No, and and as the rumor mills now swirls with, um, you know, Meghan Markle may uh, run in politics, join the Democrat Party, maybe take a run for the pre- presidency, which would just be all sorts of a, a bizarre. Um, you know, there are those who say belief. Harry. Yeah, yeah well. beyond belief, especially if she won. Um, <laughs> and look, I mean, you know, in 2015, no one was going to believe that a guy with the a businessman who'd never run for office was uh, was going to win. Uh, just think for a moment that she wins, and then the person who's close <laughs> to her is a prince of the nation that they gained independence from. In right. It becomes completely weird. But yeah, it, it, it does. But never say never. But let me ask you this. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, it's unfortunate that the fa- there has been this falling out because Harry uh, could have brought a, a, a new modernism to, to the royals. And, and can yeah. you modernize the royals, uh, you know, um, in 2021 without losing the tradition behind the crown? I, I'm not sure that you can. And I'm not sure that we want to beyond a certain amount. I mean, if you look at it through an historical sweep of things, and I mean, by that I mean through the 20th century and into the 21st century, 
the, the adaptations, the changes to the crown, meaning the, the office itself, the institution itself, um, have been uh, gradual. They've been very slow, but they have occurred and they have kept up with the times. And it really did begin with Queen Victoria uh, and continued on with her son and continued on with his and continued on even with the first great scandal of the 20th century, um, with, which led to you know, King George VI uh, coming to office when his brother abdicated the throne for the, you know, the woman that I love. Um, and then you know, through the 50s and into the 60s, where you know, the presentation of the uh, Immaculate Family was uh, damaged by the reality of divorce and unhappy marriages and uh, uh, other issues, issues that were gripping all of society. Uh, and it was also happening to the royal family, yet they too adapted, moved on, um, and became involved first with radio broadcasts and then television broadcasts and now social media. Um, so it's not a matter, I think, of them, them staying up with the times. It's allowing the institution itself, which is the symbol of the state, which is above politics, which can be a unifying force, um, that institution needs to change with the times, but gradually. Uh, it's it's yeah. not the point of the lance, if you will. It's the wake of the boat. And um, so with that in mind, uh, it's always good to review. Uh, there's never a bad time to talk about it. But, you know, I recall a conversation that uh, took place at Rideau Hall when there was a meeting of the lieutenant governors and Stephen Harper was there for a luncheon, which was not a common occasion. Um, and the topic came around to talking about uh, potential changes. And he, he said to us, he said, I'm more, I'm less of a monarchist than most people think. He said, but I just recognize that changing it would be so difficult politically uh, and so disruptive um, that it's just not worth the effort, especially since, and I, you know, we just have to take this into account. Along with Great Britain and the United States, our form of government is the only one since 1867 that has consistently remained functional without a revolution or without upheaval. There just are yeah. no other examples in the world. So if you're going to say, okay, well, let's get rid of the queen as the head of state and as I saw in one poll, let's, let's make sure that the prime minister is the head of state. Okay, well, how has that worked out in the United States? <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, exactly. Is that what we want? Yeah. I don't think yeah. so. No, I don't think so either. Uh, this pandemic and some of the power grabs should be a proof of that. David, always a pleasure. I appreciate the uh, history lesson, and it's a great uh, timely discussion for your uh, class, certainly, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alex. Always a pleasure. That is David Onley, former Lieutenant uh, Governor of Ontario. And uh, apparently there's a position open at, uh, for Governor General. Maybe he will be one of the names put into that. We will see. Stay with us. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio. If you've ever lost a job, then you know how scary it is. And uh, I worked uh, for a company a few years back that shut down suddenly. And I uh, ended up learning I was jobless by watching it happen on the news. And then, of course, once the shock wore off, I had absolutely no clue where to start. I mean, how was I going to get back on my feet in an industry that I love but is shrinking by the day? 
I know firsthand how hard that is. And especially if you're older. I mean, imagine being in that kind of position, though, now when we've got millions of people all in the same boat, there are less jobs to compete for, and you likely don't have the skills needed for something new, or you don't even have an updated resume. My next guest ended up losing his job suddenly back in 2017, and when he saw the sudden and severe layoffs just recently over at Bell, he decided to put together a website called Career Recourse, which offers up several experts to help out uh, folks who have lost their jobs and just don't even know where to get started. His name is Craig Colby. He joins us now, and the website is Career Recourse. And I should point out, I mean, you have had um, a really long career in TV production for decades, and you've got all sorts of, of awards, and, you know, you've done this for a long time. But then all, all of a sudden, like so many people who finally get the experience in an industry, you are out on your rear end. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> It happens a lot in this business. Yeah, it happens a lot. And for my, you know... I think out of my rear end is is being unfair to my former employer. Uh, they treated me really well. The job moved out of the country. I understood the decisions they were making. They made sense to me. They were uh, kind to me. They let me say goodbye to my team. Uh, they let me do a lot of things on my own turn. They offered me a fair, a fair severance package. But um, even with, and I had wanted it. I'd wanted it for a while. I'd kind of held out for the package. But at the same time. You know, your head is spinning. You don't know, uh, you kind of don't know what question to ask and, and who to ask it. So that's why I created this uh, career recourse is to try to give my friends and colleagues a leg up on where I was four years ago. Yeah. And I, I mean, once you get over the initial shock, um, you've got to get your head around the fact that, okay, the severance isn't going to last forever. And some people get a couple of months worth. Some people only get a couple of weeks and just literally don't have, you know, a, a huge turnaround time. Now, if you have a job, let's say in the hospitality sector, that's going to be a lot more difficult because they're not opened up. There's no um, you know, stability right now. But there are a lot of people out there losing jobs and businesses that they've developed, you know, years of skills Mm -hmm. and might be a little bit older, and they just literally don't know how to restart or get, you know, a direction on where to go. So does this website help with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the things that I think people uh, sell themselves short on, is that you have accumulated skills that you're probably unaware of. People generally do a really good job of selling themselves short. You know, we're all aware of our own uh, shortcomings, and uh, we emphasize our failures rather than our successes. But people have acquired skills, not just at work, but throughout their lives. And the interviews, you know, they're not super long. They're not going to reinvent things for you. And there's the contact information for you to call a few people. Most everybody on the site, if not everybody, offers a free session where they can talk about what they do and how they might be able to help you. So just because you've been in that in a job for a long time and it's disappeared. And I'll give you a television example, a uh, control room producer. You know, they, mm -hmm. they don't tend to write a lot. They're not out in the field mm -hmm. directing. They may think, well, you know, what transferable skills do I have in the media? Well, they deal with every department. They make sure a show gets on every day. They're, they're project managing on a daily basis or, you know, they're producing an event. Those are two places right off the bat they can look at that they may have a career they can move into that's, outside the industry if that interests them. Yeah, and, and your um, your webpage isn't only just about certain industries. Does this apply to, to all industries? 
Absolutely. Uh, Obviously, I'm inspired by my colleagues uh, in the media, but the information on this is transferable to anybody who's lost a job or anybody who's trying to evaluate. It's divided into four sections. We talk about the settlement, um, things you need to know Mm -hmm. about the settlement. That's called uh, legal and HR. We have a section on the money. If you have a, if you're fortunate enough to have a big settlement, uh, there's a lot of questions that come with that too. How do you stay out of a high tax bracket? Uh, how do you invest it? What do you do if you have a lot of debt? And then there's the whole wellness portion, as you said. You know, mm-hmm. there, you go through a lot of feelings. There's a there's a huge loss there, and and a lot of fear. And right now, I can tell you, it's the least visited spot on the website, but uh, it's really important to look after yourself because that will enable you to do the things you need to do to put yourself forward in the other areas. And then there's the work section that talks about uh, how to reinvent yourself, uh, what the transformations are like. Can you be a consultant? It talks about the best ways to um, network. There are do's and don'ts of networking. We talk to people about how to set up your camera for a Zoom call and best Zoom call practices. So there's a lot of super useful information on there that you can put to use right away. And, you know, it's all the little answers are a breadcrumb trail to the big answer, which is, you know, what do I do now that only you can answer? Yeah. I mean, the calls come in, you know, fast and furious in the beginning and calls of support and what can I do to help, but those calls do stop. And then you're kind of on your own to discover what's my next step. And and forced change does not have to be bad change. I mean, I ended up having to kind of go back to square zero and work on areas that I had strengths in to build myself back up. But I mean, there is no reason why once you've lost your job, you shouldn't take the opportunity to say, what else do I want to do? Boy, is that ever a great question to, to ask, especially for somebody who's had a long career. You know what you have done. But what do you want to do? Even breaking down your skills into what about the job did I like doing? Um, What was I good at? What did I get Mm -hmm. rewards out of? Um, You know, one of the things I'm doing now, I have a a storytelling business. Um, Mm -hmm. I interview people. And people are trying to create content for their website. I interview them so they don't have to create content. It's really easy. And I, you know, I do that because... I like that. That's one of the things I like most in my job. And now it is an avenue for me. But I want to go back to one of the things you said, those phone calls, they do stop coming. Mm -hmm. One of the best tips I can give anybody who's lost their job is reach out to all the people who reached out to you. You know, they didn't do it by accident. They did it because they value the relationship that the two of you have built. So reach out to those people, talk to them, have Zoom calls. When I lost my job, I didn't pay for a lunch for six weeks. And yeah. it was a, yeah, people want to help you. Let them help you. Go visit with them uh, with no other agenda other than to spend time with your friend and then find out what's going on. It was one of those friends that got me my first job after I was out of work. Yeah, a lot of times people assume, well, I haven't heard from them, so they must not be looking anymore, and that couldn't be further from the truth. It's, uh, you know, I had a hard time calling people because I, I just didn't want to. I didn't want to ask. I didn't want to bother people, and so a lot of people said, well, had I known you were looking, I would have called you for sure. So I think that's one mistake people do make, and uh, so yeah, picking up the phone and networking is still really, really valuable. And so this is called career recourse. Um, and what's what's your hope really? It's it's just to give people a help a helping hand up in. in probably one of the most volatile times that we've ever seen in this country. My hope is that people will look at it 
and spend some time on it and look for the questions they want answered and look for the questions they haven't thought of and listen to the experts. I want them to reach out to the people who are in there, or even if they know someone in a related field, reach out to them. What I hope Mm -hmm. this will do is give people a chance to get answers I didn't have, make better decisions than I did. I didn't make terrible Mm -hmm. decisions, but I could have made better ones. I hope it's a chance for uh, reflection when you've got a solid foundation of facts. And I hope it puts people on the right path. Because when you lose your job, you're on a journey, right? And Mm -hmm. this, I hope this is one of the first steps that can help people. And certainly give a a bit of a direction and, um, and, um, you know, comfort. Well, it sounds great, and I appreciate you filling us in, uh, Craig. The website is called Career Recourse. I've lost my job. What do I do now? It is uh, not going to cost you a cent, and it certainly can't hurt. Craig, appreciate your time on this. Uh, listen, I really appreciate you um, building some awareness for this, Alex, and I hope people get a chance to spend some time on the site, and I hope it leads them to a place where they uh, feel good about what they're doing and they get some jobs that they like. Yeah, that would be nice. Nice change. All righty. When we come back, by the way, in my next life, I'm just going to get a little farm, a hobby farm. I'm going to bake pies and I'm going to grow vegetables and you can come and pay at the little stand. There's my dream job. All right. That's it. Stay with us. Alex Pearson on point. And this is Global News Radio. Quarantine hotels have become more than just contentious. I mean, we've had several reported incidents of things like sexual assault and security issues, but they just don't make sense. You know, first of all, they come a year too late, but you've got the Trudeau government forcing Canadian air travelers to stay at a hotel that they mandate at the individual's cost, even though they have come into this country with a negative test. And so now this issue, and I can't say we should be surprised, is heading to court as the Canadian Constitution Foundation represents five complainants who are trying to have this program shut down because, as they will argue, it violates several basic charter rights. Christine Van Gyne is litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and you will be in court this Friday arguing on this particular case. So what is the argument? So the argument that we're making is that this is an unjustified limit on these travelers' rights. On Friday, we're actually seeking an injunction, which is is sort of different from the constitutional arguments. But what we're going to be saying is that Um, This is irreparable harm to these travelers. Um, These are travelers who are are leaving Canada for compassionate reasons, Um, for example, to attend the end of life of a parent, um, to assist a loved one who needs surgery outside of Canada. Um, One of our applicants, his wife, needs needs shoulder surgery. And these missing that is something that cannot be compensated for with, with monetary damages. You know, you miss the end of your parent's life and there's no there's no way to compensate for that. And these are individuals who are seeking to travel for those reasons, and they can't afford the cost of the quarantine hotel. So on Friday, we're going to be arguing that the law should be suspended, that it should not apply to these individuals, and then we will be further challenging the constitutionality of the law to strike it down for all travelers. And so how strong a case you think you have? You've got five complainants that have come forward. Are, are all of these people who had either a health and or a family issue across the border? Are they all a particular um, group in that compassion um, uh, grouping? Yes, all five of the travelers in the injunction on Friday are traveling for compassionate reasons. Um, Their interests are 
are really concretely affected. They, um, for example, one of our applicants, his name is TJ. His wife lives in the United States. He lives on the other side of the border in Vancouver and she broke her shoulder and a, a shoulder break is, is very, very uh, serious. Mm-hmm. Um, she cannot, you know, wash her own hair. Um, she cannot drive her car properly. She can't, her, I mean, one, one side of her body is immobilized and she requires surgery. Um, you know, TJ, they, they don't have a lot of money. They're a young couple who just got married and, um, he's financially supporting her right now because she can't work. And he wants to go down to, to help her when she has surgery as any good husband would want to, but you know, he does not have the funds to pay for the Trudeau quarantine hotel. So these are the types of cases that show exactly how unjust this quarantine hotel requirement is. Well, especially in light of the fact that we have seen others granted, um, you know, special permission, be it the executives at Costco or let's say, uh, I mean, we've seen some upper echelon people kind of skirt around these rules and get sign off from from, uh, the Trudeau government. So it can be done. I think what puzzles me most is how, um, complacent, if not accepting, Canadians have been of this kind of practice, given, um, you know, we have just shrugged our shoulders to so many basics of, of just common sense, because they just, the government says, do this. And, and the Trudeau government has put these hotels together on a political grounding, because if they were really concerned about the variants and, this, and the illness coming in, they would have done this a year ago. But they've done it now. It's been put together very badly. I'm just, I'm just really surprised that Canadians have been so willing just to go along. You know, I, I can tell you at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, we are not shrugging our shoulders. We are fighting this. Um, that's why we're going to court. And the five individuals who need to travel, um, they are, they are not shrugging their shoulders either. They desperately want to be able to exercise their right to see their loved ones who are outside of the country for these compassionate reasons. But you know, what boggles my mind is that the federal government has acknowledged the importance of compassionate travel. They've created an exemption for individuals entering Canada for compassionate reasons, but they have not created the corresponding exemption for individuals who are leaving Canada for compassionate reasons. So so they acknowledge the need to accommodate these travelers, the importance of compassionate travel and the minimal risk uh, that's created by allowing that type of travel, but, but only in one direction. It just like so many decisions of this government, it is not grounded in anything and it makes no sense. Yeah. Which has been, I think the theme since this pandemic started at every level of government is this, the decision-making doesn't, uh, it doesn't and can't be backed up by data and or science. And yet we roll over and continually kind of just uh, give up our rights and say, OK, we'll do whatever you ask, which I think yeah, is I mean, very- the minister, the minister of health and committee said that there's incomplete data to justify the quarantine hotel requirements. But, you know, there there's definitely an impact on our rights. So if they're going to infringe on our fundamental right to enter Canada and to be free from arbitrary detention, they need to have data and they do not have it in this case. Yeah. And you were quite successful the last time you stepped in uh, on the grounds of a gym that was trying to to open um, and, and actually were successful in that particular case. So do you feel like you have a strong case in this? And would the uh, on Friday, could the ruling actually be made that day? And if it went in your favor, would that mean quarantine hotels no more at all or 
So it's unlikely that we would get a decision the same day. It's possible, but I would say unlikely. Um, if we are successful in getting the injunction, injunctions only apply to the individuals who are party to it. So it would only right. apply to the five individuals. But our hope is that if the court says, you know, this is a, a problem, this this is irreparable harm to these individuals, the government would, our hope is respond by modifying the quarantine hotel requirement. So um, that's that's what we're hoping. And of course, we are proceeding with a full a full application, a full challenge. It will just be heard at a later date. The injunction is what's being heard on Friday is the first step. And just to the bigger picture, I mean, there are going to be so many cases, I think, once the dust settles on this thing and we've got it in the rearview mirror. I mean, we could be arguing these cases, whether it's quarantine hotels, um, mandated masking, all sorts of issues that people have said, you know, go against their, their freedom of um, their freedoms uh, for decades. Yeah. And I think that there's also, you know, the, the possibility of some civil liability here, either for the, the facilities themselves or for the government, um, for the way the quarantine hotel policy has rolled out. Um, I mean, people have had, there've been sexual assaults at these facilities. Yeah. People have been denied food for up to 23 hours in some cases. So I think that there's a big problem on a lot of different fronts that the government is going to be faced with on these measures. Stay tuned. Christine, I'll wish you the best of luck. I know you're very busy these days, so I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me on. That is Christine Van Gein, and she will be arguing this case, and she's with the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and that matter is in the courts on Friday, so we will keep our eyes on that. Stay with us here, Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.